0: Aloha, I'm Anne Kale Kelly, and welcome to The Native Truth, the podcast where all we do is speak the decolonized truth that is the First Peoples, First Nations, Indigenous reality. So, if you care about the survival of Native peoples, if you care about justice, if you care about Mother Earth, you're in the right place. This week my guest is Tina Nata, a fierce, articulate, courageous Maori who is one of the most dedicated Indigenous rights activists in the Pacific. We will be discussing the Doctrine of Discovery and the millions of dollars being spent by the New Zealand government to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the arrival in Aotearoa of Captain Cook. Then, Lamakumikohalobroy brings us another Ho'ailona report. But first, a few native news headlines. The government of Norway has approved copper mining and the construction of large wind turbines in an area of the Arctic that is home to at least 40,000 Sami. In December 2018, the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination called upon the government to put a temporary hold on the project to allow for investigation into Sami allegations. However, Norway's Petroleum and Energy Ministry denied the request. The Sami are opposed to these activities because runoff from mining will impact the fish and crab populations and the wind turbines are a threat to the grazing and calving of reindeer. In Spain, the trial of 47 activists, lawyers and doctors associated with Basque separatists ended 25 minutes into the proceeding when a plea deal was reached. Financing terrorism was one of several charges they faced. Basques are the indigenous people of a region that was absorbed by both Spain and France. The once active Basque National Liberation Movement, also known as ETA, evolved from being a cultural group to a paramilitary group, reportedly responsible for about a thousand deaths between 1959 and 2011, when ETA announced cessation of violence. Designated a terrorist organization by the Spanish government, ETA wasn't completely disbanded until 2018. Of the 47 who were on trial, 12 were lawyers whose clients include Basque political prisoners and 18 were affiliated with an organization that campaigns for the rights of political prisoners and Basque activists who live in exile. And as the Trump administration moves aggressively forward, with plans to sell drilling and fracking rights in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, scientists, activists, and Alaska Natives who oppose opening ANWR for oil development are criticizing the Department of Interior, Bureau of Land Management's environmental impact statement. They point out, however, that despite its many flaws, the BLM's report acknowledges the threat to almost half of the bird species that nest on the coastal plains. The report says that coupled with climate change, the impact of development may quote result in extinction during the 85-year scope of the analysis unquote. The Gwich'in people whose sustenance has for thousands of years relied on caribou and other wildlife that calve in the Anwar have fought a decades-long battle to keep oil extraction out. Polar bears, caribou, wolves, and eagles are among the hundreds of species that rely on the refuge for survival. Next up, Indigenous rights activist, Tina Nata. Tina, my friend, my sister, welcome to The Native Truth. I'm really glad you could talk story with me a little bit about what's going on and what's coming up. I know this might turn into some kind of a therapy session for me, (laughs) possibly you. (laughs) Because I don't know about you, but I need to vent. But you have a lot more going on, particularly on this subject of uh, Captain Cook and the doctrine of discovery and, you know, the celebration uh, in your country, I know, and also in Australia of a man who, to many of us, really symbolizes death and destruction for indigenous Pacific world. I'm surprised that millions of dollars are being spent to celebrate Captain Cook, his arrival Mm -hmm. there. The monument to Cook stands in Kealakekua Bay, where he's credited with discovering my people.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You
0: know, discovering Hawai'i and Australia, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm so sorry. No worries. What's going on with baby girl? (laughs) Let me sort her out. One sec. What is the problem? You just chose the perfect time. What's the problem? What's the problem, my honey? You want to go into where Rara is? You go into Rara, okay? Mummy's just going to have this one this one, hui. And then once I'm finished, I'm going to make us some lunch, okay? I got us some chicken, the balls, and dumplings and stuff, okay? All right, good girl. I'm going to hop into the blanket with Rara. We have some cuddles, cup pie. Good girl. Kish? All right we're good to go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, from taking
0: care of baby to talking about, you know, the murderous history of Captain Cook makes a segue. I mean, there is no segue, except that a crying baby does make sense when we're talking about this.
1: (laughs) Well, no, and then this is also our Indigenous reality, eh? I mean, it would be fantastic if we could just go about the business of being mums and, and continuing to live un- uninterrupted on our lands. and But just the very process of trying to be, um, you know, requires of us a whole other job of decolonisation because I'd actually just love to be, uh, you know, an Ngāti mum, living with my babies, teaching them, you know, the our ways and passing on our legacy but um, but these people want to keep on coming along with these things like a you know $27 million plus celebration to the system that completely undoes all of that and and to the system that threatens that very legacy that we are trying to live and that we're trying to pass on to our children and our babies and it tries to re-entrench the barriers to all of that legacy and so it's never not if done only, that
0: it does, it's done that right Got
1: there that's its very purpose is to undo our way of being so that it can you know implement its own way of being and so and to dispossess us of who we are and and you know our only choice to survive is to survive as a non-native it's a complete genocidal process and so you know if if only we could just live in peace um you know and be mums and uh and be our our people you know for me being a Ngātupura woman would you know would just be wonderful if we didn't have, you know, a government that wants to come along and go now. Let's re-entrench everything that stands in the way of you doing that, um, and fund that to the tune of of tens of millions of dollars. So this is the reality: is is that, um, you know, it's not a, it, it is a job. It's not a paid job, of course, these things, but it, it's a job because our very survival depends on it. Whilst also mothering and uh and doing everything that we need to do in our communities so well, let me
0: ask you though I, I have to ask you though are you taking care of yourself because i think activists i know activists and i know myself too as an activist there have been many times where i have not taken care of myself are you taking care of you
1: your body well you know all of us, I think, uh, on this front, this is the golden question and we're consistently asking ourselves how do we do this best? Okay, I think, for me, uh, the best way that I'm able to do that is peaks and, and troughs and it's a process of figuring out, you know, what are the battlefronts for me? You can't, we can't take on every battlefront. Mm-hmm. So what are my battlefronts? And then when it's not my battlefront, how can I engage in, in my self care? And for me, my self care is just retreating with my babies and my darling and just really, having having our time together um, and then I have you know my sisters as well that I will retreat into and just just be with each other and enjoy our space with each other as well and in the same sense I keep just as you have modelled just now by even asking that question I keep an eye and an air out on my sister's 90% of them are sisters engaged in the struggle and and my brothers as well to see, you know, how they're doing, checking in with them and seeing whether or not there is a way that I can support them in the nourishment when the time comes. Because being nourished and
0: nurtured and finding ways to be, like I say this a lot to people, are you hydrated? Are you drinking your water? Even doing that I have found is like an act of resistance. It is... The yeah, first place right. that I resist is to say, you know, I'm going to make sure my body's okay right now because I don't know what's going to happen after I do this or this or this. Right, and that's so,
1: right. Yeah. And and you know, just our our rhythms and our cycles. You know, we try to honour the taka in our lifestyle and and, and um, check what point of the um, of the of the cycle of the marama cycle we're up to at that time. But again, the systems that assail us are completely out of whack with all of those rhythms and patterns and tend to push you out of whack with the rhythms and patterns because you're forced to attend the meetings Mm -hmm. on the days where we definitely should not be meeting on the days that we Mm -hmm. should be at home uh, quietly considering, you know, what we're going to be doing for the next month or on the day that we should be harvesting, you know, these rhythms and cycles that have been developed um, with, with our bodies and mine by our ancestors over however long are all disrupted by needing to respond to those spaces. So, you know, I think when when I do take the time out to retreat also, it's around um, going to a space where I can listen to my body and just get back in sync with my own rhythms and and cycles as well. So all of these things are, um, are, Uh, disrupted I think when we when we take on the battles that we take on and we move into those spaces but we do it so that you know for instance our our babies don't don't have to and so that our babies have a better shot of living in sync with with their patterns and rhythms and living in a healthier way that's more in alignment with the legacy that was left Mm -hmm. by all of our ancestors.
0: If you can briefly just to the whole the the impacts of the doctrine of discovery and just tell people what the doctrine
1: of discovery is first, because I think you can really speak to it powerfully. Well, I think um, first of all that the the doctrine, um, the discourse, and then the narratives and uh, around the doctrine of discovery um, have have grown exponentially, particularly since um, the development of the permanent forum for Indigenous issues and, and for all of its uh, challenges and, and pitfalls, it has provided a space for people to come together and share their Indigenous stories and really expose some of the templates of um, colonial behaviour upon Indigenous peoples. And, and in that sense, it's allowed discussions around the doctrine of discovery to really come to the surface and understand what that has looked like for various Indigenous peoples who have been impacted upon by it. One of the things to remember about Aotearoa is that we really do labour under this myth of um, racial harmony and we hold ourselves up as a bastion of racial harmony to the world and and so we're very much, uh, I consider us to be, you know, very similar to the apron-ringing mother who really doesn't want to talk about her oldest child that's become a drug addict and so she'll talk about (laughs) everybody else than that child and will steadfastly refuse to talk about the relationships the broken relationships in the family or anything like that so just absolutely no introspection at all But, but we tend to talk about everybody else and so you know it's terrible terrible what Christopher Columbus did terrible what Hernán Cortés did those bad bad you know Americans and those bad bad Spaniards much easier yeah but we had a kind colonization here in Aotearoa ours was bloodless ours was beneficial and everything's fine here and look over there and even you know we're very quick to judge what happened in Australia Uh, even though it was the same person who applied the process uh, in Australia, that applied the process here, and so um, and so we've been very slow off the mark to come off our recognition of of the doctrine of discovery as it is applied in Aotearoa. But a few of us were aware of it, uh, Moana Jackson being one of them. So it was about four years ago when I had heard that our government wanted to spend um, millions of dollars. Oh, four years ago. I thought it was last. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. No, I mean, the time goes fast and we've heard you and I have both been involved in a lot lot of um, struggles over the past years as well. But but no, uh, it was about four years ago when I first heard about it. And at that time, it was largely going to be local government funds. But it it gathered momentum. It gathered momentum and eventually – Turned into a central uh, national government fund, uh, and to date we've tracked publicly declared expenditure of over 27 million dollars. But you could, I would say, easily double that when you take into consideration uh, so that the cross-agency work, for instance, the development of a of a school curriculum that uh, aligns. Um, British Imperial Expansion with Polynesian Navigation. Yeah, how are really they getting
0: away military. with that right there? I mean, that in and of itself is such an offensive conflation.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And in a lot of the languaging around it, both in the curriculum and in the, the uh, celebrations that are being held out around the country, use this kind of language of dual heritage. And so they try to reflect that you know British did this and Polynesian people did this so you know British has you know British maritime heritage and you know Polynesians navigated as well and they and of course the inference underneath that is you know we're all just people on a boat going places and and you got he just happened to get here before us and and so the, these are deeply political statements that are being made through the languaging that is being used in these celebrations and in and in the curriculum. It's deeply erasive of the of the fact that Māori, many Māori, have um, have stories that link us to this land well before um, the arrival of the of our Tīpuna Baka and so uh but but in many cases also you know as i've mentioned before the two are are quite different imperial expansion is a process of um, of uh, power and uh, exploitation of power and extraction of resources and the redirection of those resources to a central group uh, or a central seat of power and and that's not at all what our (laughs) What our tipuna did but the, these are some of the uh, obvious pitfalls that are happening and the, the rescripting uh, or, or the re-entrenchment of colonial fiction such as uh, a strong focus on the benefits of colonization a strong focus on on how we all benefited out of it and that uh, and the uh, good aspects of cook so they like to focus upon what an amazing cartographer he was, the great maps that he drew. And then along the way there are some small uh, acknowledgments at best to times where things might have gone wrong and one or two were killed. And so the process for myself and, and a few others have been to, has been to grow awareness about the fact that actually it was his modus operandi to shoot first and ask questions later and he barely went particularly on that first journey a week without shooting at our ancestors and that it didn't just happen to us this is another one of those colonial fictions is that it suits the colonizer to individualize and isolate the stories so that everybody thinks that everything just happened to them and that's what abusers generally do right they they try to make you feel that you're alone in your experience and so Um, the tendency, the colonial tendency has been for people to isolate their stories and our response to that has been to talk about the broader experience in Aotearoa around Cook, highlight that he shot and killed and tortured and abducted everywhere he went uh, around around, um, Aotearoa and that where he didn't do that, that was the exception to his MO, not the other way around.
0: Well, I I think okay. also, though, what people, you know, the discovery, he's a discoverer, an explorer. That's like the whole fiction around him. He was a military man on a military mission. People
1: yes, of course can't, yeah, marginalize yeah, 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 that yeah.
0: whole reality of him, right? He was a naval captain.
1: Yes, people tend to, and I think one of the strong um, discourses here in Aotearoa has been that he was on a science mission that he was somewhat of a renaissance man who was interested in in observing the transit of Venus. But a lot of that uh, is derived from the fact that there were multiple colonising nations moving around the Pacific at that time, and it was a convenient cover for the Navy to have the Royal Society co-fund the voyage, the first voyage, and call it a, a scientific voyage. But he had, from the moment he left the shores of New Plymouth, instructions in hand that were uh, to, to you know, scare quotes, discover land. And of course you can't discover land that is already has people living on it, but to discover land and to uh, report back on the resources. And it mentions, it's very specific, it mentions also the minerals uh, the plants, and, and so they want a detailed inventory of our of our resources of our talma that they uh, that he would then report back to the queen and uh, to the king and, and and to claim land where he saw fit. And so, it, one of the interesting parts of those instructions uh, and, and the fact that he was obviously a military officer, given a military vessel and it was fully armed. And if you take all of the time markers out of that, it's quite clearly an invasion. If anybody did that today, it would be seen as an invasion. And so, and so that's exactly what it was—a military invasion. And it was, you know, a standard practice of uh, the military being the vanguard of imperial expansion, of them going forward into the world to help expand the empire that came behind them. And in that sense, this is very similar this is exactly what connects him to the other again scarecrow explorers and discoverers uh, of the age of discovery which is probably better known as the age of genocide and and that includes cabot and that includes cortes and that includes columbus and magellan and the the running thread between all of these experiences is the doctrine of discovery and so you know you for many of us as Indigenous peoples, we often, I've often heard us say, you know, what, what gives anybody the right, and you have to think, you know, really, what does give anybody the right to think that they can go into somebody else's place, space, and claim it, just claim it for their own, and claim rights over their bodies, claim rights over their lives, and think that you are entitled to be able to to do these horrendous things that these men did over over that age of genocide and and the answer is is generally the doctrine of discovery because this entitlement is enshrined within a set of laws that yes. were issued by by the vatican is uh codified yep. yeah so it was codified into these documents and and uh, and the language is very specific within these documents. It's to to conquer, to vanquish, to dispossess, to commit to perpetual slavery, uh, all of the peoples of the lands that you that you will come across and and though you know that's that's language that has been um repeated over a number of of these laws. Um, and and that you know all of their dukedoms kingdoms dominions and possessions will come into you into your into your possession and that you can convert all of them for your use and profit now this is 1453 Mm -hmm. that they were using these terms of of you know you have the right to take from these people for your profit and so the way in which this manifests in our global economy has a Clear genealogy back to these to these bulls of the 1450s.
0: It's fascinating to me that some pope or priest or you know king or anybody can say, "Well, this here's this rule for you, Christopher Columbus mm. or Magellan or mm. Cook or whoever." Christianity has been quite the tool, okay, mm. of of uh, control. Um, especially, I see this just in Hawaii. I, I and I know this from my own kupuna. They'll say, yes, howly or bad, or, you know, this and this happened, and this was terrible, but at least they brought us Jesus. There's a kind of <laughs> logic here that I feel like we need to speak to as we talk about
1: this history that came out of that church. And this is why it's called the, the doctrine of Christian discovery. It eventually became some of the foundational laws for the law of nations, which eventually turned into international law. And so a lot of our international law that is applied through places like the UN, it, it, it has its foundations rooted in these ideas of supremacy, not only of white intellect and not only supremacy of, um, of white people or bodies, but supremacy of our atwa. The idea is, our, atua, our our God, our singular God, is supreme to your indigenous gods or faith, and you will submit or or you will die. And so, this has been one of the most heavily aspects or you know heavily impacted dimensions of who we are is the assault upon our spirituality. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know I appreciate many people will take from from both sides but there's only one side that's been severely diminished and that's the side of, of our atuans and and it's always been my position that if we cannot defend our atua we will have a very hard time defending our whenua our moana and our rangi uh, because they are our atua and in that there's a challenge to our brothers and sisters and in, in the, the Christian religions or in other religions that have a heritage and a relationship to the diminishment of our own beliefs. Uh, if we expect governments to respond to the heritage of their relationship to our disposition, then I think uh, when you consider that it was literally the cross and the crown that carried out these acts, mm-hmm. um, that, that there needs to be a response to that as well. And and people you know so that's a that's a challenge for the faith to respond to that heritage.
0: What has been the toughest part for you as you have walked through the process of educating your own people
1: and anybody who would listen about what this celebration really means? Challenges that we face, which is the ones that are closest to home are the hardest. so the discussions with our own. Uh, are often can be in one sense um, the most difficult to navigate but also because it's the most heartbreaking (laughs) just Mm -hmm. to see um, to see your own uh, become complicit but this you know and this exists across multiple across multiple spaces you know we have and uh, I would say our treaty negotiation process has largely been responsible for growing a culture of um, of compromise, and somewhere along the way, you know, I I think back to the to the 80s and even in the 70s and the the strong tradition of civil disobedience that we come from uh, and the marches that we had, but somewhere along the way in the in the I'd say the 80s and the 90s we we started to uh, change tack and look at getting around the table. And compromising away this in order to gain that, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the um, kind of teeth of our resistance movement got got pulled, and I think we've compromised, probably possibly compromised away too much.
0: When you speak about people sitting, you know, getting a seat at the table, that's been a that's been a refrain for like twenty years. It's kind of hurts mm-hmm. the ears. It's a kind of assimilation, really, to have a seat at that table. It kind of like sets up for going along with something like say celebrating the arrival of captain cook yeah. Um, yeah. how does that so in what ways are you seeing these kinds of complicities with regard to well California? i mean
1: you know there, there there needs to be and there and there has always needed to be an upfront discussion from the very beginning around whether or not this is a wise decision in the first place, whether or not we oppose the entire fund. We've had generations of people work very hard for us to empower our, our um, indigenous voice. And one of the most powerful things we can do with that voice is to say no. And I think you know we've become uh, you know, yes people in many spaces and, and that hasn't served us well. And I see this in in places like Ihumātao in, in New Zealand, and I see it also in the owner care movement, where we just finally reach a point where we say, you know what? No, no more. This is as far as you go, and no more. And we have to be drawing those lines, and I think we have to be more proactive about drawing those lines. And the power of making that stand, you know, the world is aware of these movements now because because, not because the people standing. standing Yes,
2: exactly. Not, Not from sitting, table, exactly. exactly. Not sitting at a because table,
1: but standing on your feet. That's exactly right. And and so that is what has woken the world up to those movements. And I think if we believe in ourselves more and we believe in the power of our voice and, and using that voice now, you know, more that that's the most powerful space that we can come from.
0: Well, Tina, much mahalo to you, really, and gratitude for, for everything that you're doing because it's... All your work is an enlightenment, really. You educate all of us and you really are an inspiration to so many people. I know in your own country, but I know Hawaiians as well and people on the continent. We all aloha you.
1: Oh, mahalo ya'oi. And uh, thank you very much for... For having me on, and and I've really enjoyed um, our conversations over the years, Kela, and, and appreciate also the work that you do. So, uh, Te Haukau, so many thanks uh, to to you and to the Ohana. Ora.
0: And now the Ho'Ailona report.
2: Kamahao, wondrous sign, Ilawe eruption of 2018. Owe, owe na oli, wo, wo, wolanie. The rustling, the murmurings in nature, the roar, the roar of heaven. Where did place names in Hawaii and the Pacific originate? Not with man. The great Pacific ancestors of the light of Akua of OEV teach us that the origin of life for the planet is in the Pacific. At this time, the severe weather being experienced over all the earth in storms, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, extremes in heat and cold are due to Earth's receiving of the great light of Akua in the great age of light ulama, in the Pacific, the eruption in Hawaii that created Kapu'uloa, Fissure 8 is one of the greatest eruptions ever. This this eruption stands in history as the greatest manifestations of all time of the connection of earth and all life to our source of life. Akua Manamanaloa names Fissure 8. This Inoa sacred name is O Maka'olahou Kalua'okalani, source of the rebirth of the second heaven. For the native truth, I am Mika Kahalaroy, Kahu of Owenihio, Kamakohonu Hawai'i.
0: We end this week's show with Louis Armstrong and his orchestra's rendition of Nale o Hawaii Song of the Islands. I love how rather than sing the lyrics, he scats. You got to listen close, though, because it's an oldie. It was recorded on OK Records in 1929. Wow. That was 90 years ago. There's got to be a few kupuna around who still remember this one. Mahalo nui to Teokas and Ghost Horse for sharing his song, Prayer, from the album Kissa, and to Lamakumi Roy for the Ho'elona Report. And Mahala Nui loa to our Maori Manawahine, Hoa, and Koa Tina Nata. We all need to ku A against celebrating Captain Cook, Christopher Columbus, and any other white supremacist, indigenous hating, conduit to the erasure of our Kupuna and the other native peoples of the world who never invited any of what empire has rained down on us. Ikuma Mao and Mahala shout out to the hundreds of Ku Kia Imona, and lastly, it takes more than passion to produce the Native Truth. It takes time, energy, and resources, and a lot of what our Jewish friends call chutzpah. It's a good word. So if you want to hear more podcasts like this one, make a donation at nativetruth.com or annkeellakelly.com. A hui Malamopono pono. Until the last, aloha aina.